Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Mr. Walton, did you make contact with Alien? Were you taken to another planet, to a mothership? How did they communicate with Can you tell me what they look like? How many of them there were? Were you, were you given food? But the teachers are alive. They're not books. They are the very living essences of nature itself. What a strange person. Unbelievably powerful supercomputer that's running our reality, and we don't have a clue yep. as to how to operate it. So when maybe you or somebody else creates an AGI system and you get to ask her one question, what would that question be? What's outside the simulation? Say in your mind... Say to yourself, I am more than my physical body because I am more than physical matter. I can perceive that which is greater than the physical world. study the esoteric or the occult you're gonna love this one christine payne tower is here with us 
and uh, partial author and creator of Tarot of the Holy Light and author. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what else I can say. I'm stoked. I got a whole story about this deck, too, I want to tell you guys. Tonight, we will open the phones up again to where you can call in and win your tickets to thefringefest.com. Some of the speakers are going to include Clyde Lewis, uh, Jordan Maxwell, Harold Couts, Linda Godfrey, um, Karen Dahlman, Guy Winter, and we got more coming, too. We also got live performances going to happen. $15 pass for the whole weekend, but if you call in when we open the phones up tonight, the first caller will win two tickets to thefringefest.com. That's thefringefest.com. That caller number is 1-800-588-0335, and you can join our chat room by going to thefringe.fm forward slash chat room. You can listen to this show any night, five nights a week, 9 p.m. Pacific to midnight, or sorry, 9 p.m. Pacific to 11 p.m., not midnight. We changed that, I remember, and then the followed by the secret teachings. The new apps are out, and so is the Alexa app, and you can also listen to the show on TalkStream Live and the Paranormal Radio app as well and catch our archives there. What else? I want to thank our sponsors at GetTheT.com, AncientLifeWell.com, and Metaphorical Archaeology, and the patrons of this broadcast, the ones that make it happen. You can join our Patreon and support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash LTV Radio or click the banner on the website. Now, if anybody of you, if any of you guys have studied uh, the occult, then you know the tarot is a big part of it. And if any of you have studied the tarot, then there's a couple of things that you use it for a big one and it's all the rage right now is divination everybody's using it especially on youtube if you go to youtube they're just doing they're divining the signs i mean there's so many tarot readers out there right now however there's another use for the tarot and uh and this person that's with us tonight is really i mean you can't find anybody better out there period to talk to you about the history of this but there is another use for it, and you can use it for uh, magic and initiation. That's what I call it, or, or your uh, hermetic process, so to speak. There's all kinds of stuff that people use it for, but the, biggest, the main reason to use it for is to study the esoteric story of initiation and ascension and spirituality and understanding and divination that goes way back to fortune-telling, a lot, back, a lot further back than a lot of us know. So... Uh, that's what we're going to be discussing tonight because it gets perplexing, right? Once you really start studying this, you're like, well, what tarot deck do I use? It's kind of like astrology. Which system do I use? What, where do I go? Well, when Nish came on the show, that was about a year ago, Nish, I had her, I was, she did a reading for me that was so accurate. I mean, it was the, probably one of the most accurate readings I ever had. And she showed me the pictures of the deck. And I said, what deck is that? because it was just chocked full of some of the best esoteric symbolism I've ever seen. And she's like, well, I love this deck. This is, uh, this is uh, the Tarot of the Holy Light. And she talked about uh, Kristen Payne Tyler and this deck, and I was thinking, man, I've got to talk to her. And I, uh, anyways, I don't want to ramble too much because I want to get into this. So if you haven't heard of Kristen Payne Tyler, she's a tarot mystic author and expert tarot reader and the founder of Tarot University which was established to promote the understanding and study of tarot as a useful astro-alphanumeric document with relevance in the 21st century. She also has invented her life in the study of tarot. Starting in 1970 with the purchase of a used deck, her newfound passion inspired her to collect tarot decks that span centuries and continents. And she's also the author of The Underground Stream, 
Esoteric Tarot Unveiled, Unveiled, a book on the history and deeper meaning of the tarot decks and cards. Now you can go to uh, www.looksliknoornorie.typepad.com. Uh, I probably said that wrong, but Christine, thanks for coming on the show. How do I say that right? Uh, <laughs> Norie. The, the website, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. The website is noriabrownfield.com. No, so, okay, Noria, as in nature, O-R-E-A-H. <clears throat> And then the word brownfield.com. That's our site where all those things can be found. So thanks for giving me an opportunity to say that. Yeah, you're very welcome. And tons of information on there as well, too. This is the link that Pacho gave me, but it leads. I think they both lead to the same place. Now, real quick, before we get um, into the story, I couldn't find the deck at first. I was so excited when Nish gave me the reading and I looked at it. So I actually went on eBay. I kind of feel bad, but I went on eBay and got a deck. But the cool thing is, is it's got your signature on it and Michael's. Um, there, it says 32 of 150 on it. I guess there was 150 of these or something. And the little packet. Um, uh, yeah, I think I know who you bought it from. There's a very few people who we allow to sell them besides <clears throat> ourselves. Okay. Especially uh, signed copies like that. So very good. I'm glad you found it, and I hope you got the little white book as well. I did. I did. I got the little white book and the blue book. I'm very lucky. So, um, yeah, so this is my my main thing here is, like, you're the perfect person to come to. I mean, you have – I was really looking for answers about the history of the tarot, and I read a few books about it, and, you know, the a lot of the main, especially modern occultists, they, they kind of tell you, well – it goes back to Eliphas Levi, and then after that, nobody knows anything. And I'm thinking, well, that that can't be true. And um, after I started reading your material, I was like, wow, this thing has a deep history to it. It's much deeper than we all know. And uh, you took on a massive project doing this, didn't you? Yeah, I did. You know, but as you said, I started in 1970, the end of the year of 1970, just falling right into the deep end of the pool. And it grabbed a hold of me and literally laid out my life in front of me. Now, you know, part of this has to do with a personal destiny issue, but because this just so happened that I got grabbed in this way and it stretched me out and forced me to learn the grid, um, that grid laps over into astronomy and into alchemy and into Kabbalah and into number theology. And by the time you're done, you have this interpenetrating network that spans all the thousands of years that humans have existed. So I know that sounds completely fantabulous, but I've spent my life documenting the foundations of it and the reality of it as it has come forward from antiquity. And it's really about capturing the meaning of the sky and then bringing it down to earth and then bringing it inwards to the inner firmament so that we can connect our private reality to the cosmic reality. Because since as far back as we can look, we know ourselves to be not just a child of the earth, but a child of the cosmos as well. And there's something that we do with the light that comes down on us that makes us more than just 
like the grass, children of the earth. We, we have some blend of time and timeless or uh, infinite and local. We, we are a bridge. The, the human experience provides a bridge. And I'm not saying that the rest of nature doesn't participate in that bridge as well, because I'm, you know, as you can see from the structure of Tarot, the entire four elements world, animal, vegetable, mineral, and human, are all ranged around the angelic and infernal. You know, so you, you have not only a terrestrial compass, but you have a celestial compass at, what, at, at the same time, at, which means, <laughs> it, it, what it, basically what it means is that since antiquity, we've had certain kinds of people who could lay on their backs under the stars and fathom the motions they were looking at. Mm-hmm. Now, some people believe that this is a leftover from super ancient civilizations, other high technology civilizations that humans also had, which we lose in between cataclysms. You know, so we end up being bombed back to the Stone Age, so to speak, and then we have to build it all up again, and then it's cataclysm time again, and we have to lose everything that we built. But there, there's no question there's been time for humans, some humans, to get off the planet and then hover around watching over those that were left behind. Uh, and so it could be that our eternal fascination with gods and demons and E.T., is connected to where we're waiting for our cousins to come back. Or, you know, those of us who are left as terrestrials know yeah. that a part of us is already out there. So, you know, it's, these are all deep DNA memories because we lose the evidence of those civilizations. You know, a cataclysm is total enough, you're going to lose most of the evidence of your existence. Yeah, so, but we you know what, know though? How- when I just as a normal human, when I look up at the stars, like I totally see my intuition lights up more than anything, you know, like I don't under, I've been trying to explain this since I started the show, but the night sky, especially when it's clear and I can really see all the stars, the moon and everything, but specifically the stars, my intuition, my internal, I guess, light bulb just goes off, you know, and that's what people forget. If you are looking for initiatory material at, in any modality, it's going to be found at the back of the cave, in the darkest of the dark, or where they walled you up in a meditation chamber, or you know where you're turned to face. You're in Plato's cave, facing the wall, because it's that. That's the only time that you discover how much your brain is hallucinating everything. Those are the times when you realize, my God, I've been making all this up, you know, based on the momentum of a learned narrative that I'm using just to fend off reality. And so there's a point where we want to go stare at the wall like a Zen. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. 
In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Practitioner. And, like, just empty our minds and let them vomit up all the programming that's been laid down in there so that we can begin to experience our aboriginal consciousness. Oh, wow. Now, well put. Yeah. When Michael was making this deck, I'll try and remember to bring things back to the tarot for your listeners. Um, when Michael was making this deck, I let him know, among many things, that I was locating myself in 1600 in Europe amongst a certain group of mystics, Kabbalists, alchemists, um, astrologers, and masons, and Rosicrucians. And, you know, so people from multiple different mystery traditions who were running uh, secret societies around this character, Jakob Burma. And he although he was untrained via university-style education, he was such a raving mystic that everybody networked around him because he, he got it. He saw, he was one of those people at the hub of the web who saw all the intersecting parts. And it could be because he was an oddball, you know, or it could be this is, you know, the same lifetime coming up every four or five hundred years to carry the ball another few yards down the field. But in any case, this soul emerged right at this time in, in um, Bohemia who saw the intersection point between these multiple esoteric paradigms. And so I stood right next to him. Because I thought, okay, here's somebody I can study with, and he will explain how these different esoteric models interact, which he does very beautifully. And he happened to be um, knowledgeable with a compass and a protractor and the tools of a scribe. And so he added, he and his followers, who happened to be bookmakers and illustrators themselves, left us a huge, amazing catalog of super high technology engravings with amazing mystical um, implications. And so this is B-O-E-H-M-E, Burma, or Berman, Jakob Berman, and his legacy then rolled forward into what became the French Masonic tradition, uh, the Rosicrucian model, and in particular, the Tarot emerged from that milieu. Now, you know, when you say, as you did at the beginning, that the history of Tarot, you can look backwards as far as Levi, and then it seems like the door shuts. Um, the reason why is because Levi was at the head 
of the Rosicrucia of Europe, and those are all closed societies. And so you, uh, it has only been in the 120 years since Levi's death that the orders have somewhat fallen apart enough that their secret archives are coming out. So it's not that these orders have lost their vitality, they're underground streets and they, you know, show themselves for a while and then trickle away into the underbrush again, but Levi was another node, another one of these intersection point people who saw the full picture of how these esoteric arts converge. And they're all over the place, these people. It's not that uh, there's only one on the planet at a time because I think there are savants show up all through the cultures. You know, there's people who are on the planet now helping to hold it together, helping to hold the model together, helping to hold the visualization of what we're doing. Um, and they're providing these, like I said, spider threads of coherence into these different esoteric worlds. and. We don't really see them because, you know, they leave, the, the tracks they leave are uh, study groups, bibliographies, tools like Tarot, um, evocative histories that don't fully explain anything but represent something miraculous that we all think probably is true. You know, they lead us along like Pied Pipers, but they don't always tell us where to go or what to think. They just lay these things down in the road and then walk on and let people encounter them. And that's the way Tarot, that's how I found it. Um, in a secondhand bookstore, uh, looking for Christmas presents my uh, freshman year of college. And just something happened to my head in the presence of this deck that made it clear to me I needed to take it home. And then when I came back and asked about what is this thing? Tell me more about it. I was pointed to a stash of um, Masonic books on Tarot, which matched the deck, so I took them home too. And, you know, I didn't know I was going into the deep end. But I did have, I have had a life that has been marked by profound synchronicities. Synchronicities is such thunderousness that I could not look away or pretend it was any other way. So even long before I ran into any material on self-initiation, which just means self-cultivation, just like a martial artist, just like um, a PhD candidate, just like somebody in the higher echelons of the healing arts, you have to uh, become the product of your work. You have to use the tools to bring coherence to your psyche and to your life. If you can't do that, then you can't become a teacher, right? Because you're not an exemplar. You can't perform what's necessary to show those around you what's real. Right. And that's the big deal here. It's all about being able to um, discriminate what's real. Well, you know, one of the reasons why I got into doing the late night radios there's so many uh you know conspiracy networks out there talking about the occult 
always from a dark aspect too. They always threw the dark swing to it, you know. And it was like, okay, the you want to make people aware of the occult and the esoteric, but you're not empowering people. You just want them to be afraid of it. So therefore, you're really not doing anything for anybody else. You're still disempowering. Good, them, you know. That's good insight. Yes, I agree. And so I'm, an, I'm uh, up against a big battle here with this, I got to tell you. But um, Oh, yeah, you don't have to say that to me. You know, when I first showed up in public, it was with my graph that I made in 1985 and put into the first book, The Underground Stream, comparing the esoteric correspondences of every, every deck I could get my hands on that had a full body of correspondences and some writings to justify it. So I literally hoovered up every deck that was available in America through U.S. game systems and, and other avenues as well. Anything that had a body of writings to justify the full astrological suite on the Trumps and then through the Royals and across the Miners, anybody who was using that model, I sucked them up and put them on my graph to see how they corresponded to the sacred alphabet and to the number archetypes. And that was my criteria for determining what was a, you know, serious adult master deck versus all these knockoffs that exist, which are proliferating to the maximum degree. In the 70s, there just weren't a lot of books. There weren't. And most of them had been written at the turn of the previous century. And the ones that were in English were mostly tied up with Golden Dawn stuff. That's why I'm so completely amazed yeah. that I was handed the masterwork of the French esotericists with my first deck, because in America you can barely find that stuff. Everybody was besotted with the Order of the Golden Dawn and the Crowley material. Yeah, and every, so every you know, yeah. I actually was initiated into one of the Golden Dawn orders here, not, you know, years ago and found that you know it was so perplexing because once i looked into the lineage of everything it's like well you know was regardi did israel regardi even have permission to like initiate in any adepts or whatever so you know was my lineage actually legit or i I don't know and and then the more i looked into this then i started looking at other things like uh you know the tarot right and the further back you go, the it, I'm not, it doesn't get watered down. It just seems like the Golden Dawn put a good system together, and it was something decent until the politics got involved, and uh, I guess you could say the self-righteousness of certain people got involved, um, and the unwilling to adapt, and then Crowley comes around and says, well, I'm the guy that's going to adapt, but I'm also going to spill out the secrets with my agenda behind it, too, and just everything got right. messed up, you know? Well, basically what they did, they saw what magic consisted of, which is astrology and astronomy with then the alchemical elemental theory and the Kabbalist self-cultivation project. They put these things together, and those things have been traveling together since they hit Europe uh, after the Crusades. What happened was the little envelope the Dark Ages envelope that allowed European civilization to just kind of chug along without too much literacy and only have contact with other civilizations 
in a filtered way. Um, that got busted up after they staged the Crusades and went and invaded the Holy Land and created all this brouhaha. By the time those guys came back, they had been infected with Islamic and Hebrew culture. And the bland, uh, sort of folk Christian veneer over Europe broke into a million pieces. And you have the Renaissance Magi stepping forward. You also have the witches or the, the uh, going back to nature movement that got framed as witches and then persecuted for it. You have all, uh, the, the Cathar, um, the repression of the indigenous Gnostics. You have a bunch of different phenomena that shifted the playing field very strongly and the plagues um, and caused everybody to start thinking that they wanted to be an independent entrepreneur in the realm of magic. Yeah. You know, that people who are well enough educated could go figure it out themselves rather than having to employ the church to tell them yes or no, whether they could, you know, do something operative in their own lives. You know, this is all psychology. Jung, I've been spending some time in a Jungian context the last few years. I actually went down to the Jung Society in San Francisco in 2018 and presented a weekend workshop on Jung and occultism to help them see what Jung was seeing. Because he was a multilinguist, and so he could see all the word roots, and he could see all the untranslatable puns and funny business in the spelling uh, in the back of these romance languages that he was reading in. And the old, you know, reading, because he was reading things from across the last 2,000 years that he made himself a linguist so that he could peruse the stacks, so to speak, of uh, Western civilization. And um, because he had a gift for that, he could see this number letter mysticism playing out. I don't think anybody pointed it out to him, but I think he was deeply impregnated by it, and he saw it as the tool or the vehicle whereby the subconscious speaks to the ego. And recently I wrote a book on, I mean, not a book, I'm sorry, a long, a 35-page article for the International Jungian Culture Journal on synchronicity in order to bring the understanding of occultism to the science of synchronicity because this is where the wires cross or where the, the uh, how it's the science of miracles, the science of synchronicities, that personalities like ourselves have a special gift for bending the laws. Yeah, that's, that's man, that's exactly what I've been trying to tell everybody since I started this broadcast. And the thing is, like I just told you, and I know we kind of st steered away from the tarot and we skipped the first break, but I knew that would happen anyways. But like I just told you, it's kind of like... Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, 
and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Every channel I turn on, especially in this field, they are disempowering people left and right. All they want to talk about is how bad things are, whose, whose fault is it, this or that. And then when they mention occultists, like Crowley or any Freemasons or anything like that. It's all just dark, 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 dark. No one takes time to look at the fact that when they do look up at the stars at night, when that intuition lights up inside of them, that people have been teaching them that they can play with the laws, so to speak, hermetically as above, so below, and create their realities in a loving and creative way using these forces, right? They don't, there's, whatever it is, doesn't want you to know that. And whatever is, Moving through these people, which I haven't figured out yet, is trying to keep people down, down. It's like de-evolution, uh, consciously, if, if that makes sense. Well, I do think that's happening for as many souls that are passing through, uh, going in the direction that you and I are in, in time. There's a whole number of souls who are passing through... Uh, sorry, going in the opposite direction of time. You know, devolution looks like evolution to them and vice versa. I mean, we are, you are not supposed to share reality directly with a lot of creatures. You know, there's substances that are corrosive and will give you cancer. Or there's substances that will um, addict you to their nirvana and never let you come back again. You know, so there's reasons to keep you know, keep your own center and not stray too far from your essence. But the world is, con- is filled with diversity and it's coming and going from all directions. So I, I kind of have this visualization of being in a time tube. We're all each in our own, like uh, a vein or an artery, chugging along our little time tube. And it, the tube could be curving all around and making knots and we wouldn't know because we're on the inside of it just proceeding along with the flow. Um, but that's, that's your guarantee that nothing can interfere with you as long as you don't fight the power, you know? Yeah. Learn to work with your own groove. And don't worry too much what the pattern is unless you find a high spot where you can take a break and look out over it, you know? Perspective is a good thing when you can get it. And med- meditation, and that's also things like tarot, but we should talk a little bit about how tarot could be used as a self-cultivation tool. Well, but before we get to that, do you believe, and by the way, this, I just have to say the symbolism in the, in, the, in the tarot of the holy light is immaculate. It's, I mean, as far as striking the mind and the subconscious and really speaking to a person's soul, I have not seen a deck like this ever. The colors, I mean, everything. It's amazing. Um, but... Do you That's believe? That's my husband, Mike Bowers. He yeah. made that. Well, tell. I hope he hears this. I'm. Mean, he's sure he's heard it before. Um, but it's yeah. It's truly amazing. Um, do you believe there is true both uh, divinatory power in these decks as well as? And I'm not just saying on a small level. I'm sure you would say yes. But at what 
extent can just a deck of these cards do for our life? Well, basically what it can do is help us stabilize our grid, help us uh, build a map inside of ourselves that takes into account the full 360 degrees around us. So it can help break us out of our stuck polarities where we get caught up in the cul-de-sac of either or. It can help fan out the spectrum of possibilities again instead of us getting caught on either or it can help us take parts from different fantasies and combine them together in a new way because you you have that intersection of um the picture the word and the idea so anytime you're triangulating you're getting 3d Right? It's just like your two eyes triangulate with a, a thing out there in the environment, and through the act of there just being a few inches difference between one eye and the other, they give you a dimensionality to what you're looking at. Okay. And you can suddenly see it, and you can see the scale, and you can see how it's embedded in the landscape. You can see all kinds of things that are much more than what you see in a flat plane. So. This is what I'm saying. You can use Tarot to triangulate with, and even uh, you're looking at the cards with two different eyes and two different sides of your brain, so you don't even necessarily need to call forward the whole landscape. You can just work with these little game chips, and they contain the whole landscape in five and 10 degree segments, according to the signs and planets and elements, and inside the worldview and inside the um, hologram of the Renaissance Magi. Now, again, I took my stand at 1600 with a particular person and a particular manifestation in time because I was looking for somebody who demonstrated through his actual uh, works and the productions that he and his school made that they showed in so many words everything that they were doing all coming together at once. And although it's, you know, a challenge to break into, there's been enough work on it that it's very clear now what he was doing. And so that transmission has come forward and impressed many people, again, in the Rosicrucians, among the Masons, other magical groups, uh, and the... Um, a group called the Elu Cohen picked it up in the seven, late 1700s and it rolled into the 1800s with Louis Claude de Saint Martin, who inspired Waite and Crowley, but who was, uh, you know, the re, uh, the uh, heelstone on which Pappas reanimated the Martinist lineages. So in all this time, they're dropping tarot decks into the stream since the late 1700s. Um, so that's when the folk tarot and the Marseille tarot, you know, first they were just being handmade like manuscript mini miniatures, tiny little paintings, one-off for royalty. Then they made wood blocks, uh, coarse wood blocks that they could just bam out and either sell in black and white or finger paint and sell for a little bit more. And then eventually we got to be copper plate engraving point, and at that point the subjects were very regulated. 
now I'm talking 1600s, very regulated in the art of a tarot was kept away from the art of astrology and the art of um, alchemy and all that because they were trying to suppress, keep the, keep the uh, excitement down, you know, keep tarot as a, as a game and mm-hmm. not create a whole bunch of brouhaha and bring the church because the church was still having book burnings and witch burnings and, you know, uh, the Catholic censor looked over everything and determined who or what could be printed. So there was a whole movement of renegade presses who would run at night doing heretical stuff and in the daytime they'd be working for the Pope. Um, so there's this great movement of the visionary art of the 1600s in an underground stream, as I named my first book after, um, of swapping symbolism and swapping artistic images with all kinds of suggestive information in them in order to, you know, keep the dialogue going amongst the esotericists, even as the church was practicing its scorched earth campaign in the villages. Wow. And see, that's, that's, and people just don't know how perplexing it goes back uh, to, so when you go, when you went into this, you went, your first studies were in, you got all your information, uh, I think I heard this right, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, from uh, a Freemason that was getting rid of all their books or something, this is how you started diving into all this information? Yeah, I was at a used bookstore, and... I saw this tarot deck on the shelf behind the guy's head at the checkout stand, and it literally levitated up off the shelf and came and smote me in the eye. The words T-A-R-O-T, the letters T-A-R-O-T on the side of the box just came forward and said, boom. And um, that particular deck turned out to be bogus, but then I was intrigued, and when I went back, I said, well, give me a real one. And they had this... um, It's called The Sacred Tarot by C.C. Zane, and it's associated with this 22-volume encyclopedia of esotericism, and it was put together in um, Los Angeles at the turn of the century. At the same time that the weight deck was being made in Europe, at the same time that some of these uh, Spanish-inflected Marseille decks were starting to appear in Spain, where they finally were printing their own decks and demonstrating their own mastery of the model. Um, and so there was something that happened at the turn of the 1900s that broke Tarot open into the world more freely. And that was a probably a planned release from the Masons and Rosicrucians to begin letting this trickle out. So I was lucky enough to just be to walk into this used bookstore who had just had this stuff sold to them. I was sitting on the shelves, and I said, I need to know more about Tarot, and he just walked me to the shelf. He said, well, here's the books we have right now, and it was Moni Sadhu, and it was a book by Pappas, Tarot the Bohemians, and it was a book by Levi, the, the art, and uh, I can't remember this long French title, uh, Ritual Magic. Yeah, yeah. Those three I brought home, Art and Practice of, it's a... Two volumes bound together, each one of them 22 chapters. Yes, fantastic so, text. Yes, of course. And he's writing to Tarot. 
he's writing it to the Tarot. And at the time that I finally got onto a internet watering hole where there were other Tarot historians, um, I had been perusing this material for years, and like I said, I'd been collecting decks from Europe or wherever I could find them that had this level of support material. Because like I said, I got this deck, it comes with a 22-volume encyclopedia of esoteric learning from a Masonic-style context. At, you know, published at 1906 with this Egyptian-style deck, black-and-white Egyptian-style deck. And it turns out those very images were being used by Madame Blavatsky when she was teaching Tarot to the Theosophical Society. So this stuff has a pedigree as a body of images, just like it has a pedigree as a body of correspondences, um, you know, astronomical and elemental correspondences. It has a pedigree as a body of titles, and it has a pedigree as a playing card deck. And it's all these things com condensed together, and on top of that, it contains Kabbalah and astrology and alchemy and everything that, that is woven into the esoteric net. Now, this has been the thing I've had trouble convincing the Tarot world because they're so dazzled by the seeming amazing thing that the Golden Donners did that they didn't, that don't realize that the Golden Donners were very lucky they came at the tail end of a resurrection of the world's esotericism, right? Mm -hmm. One of them, I think it was Florence Farr who worked at the London Museum and they had stuff coming through their hands all the time from all over the world where, uh, you know, archaeology and... Um, translations and uh, art exhibits of all kinds, sacred technologies, all this. So they, they had their hands on a lot of amazing stuff, but they did not want to follow in the footsteps of the European Masonic and Rosicrucian lodges. They just didn't want to. They're, they're English. They wanted to have their own thing. So they took the rose window and threw a rock through it and then picked up the shards and pieced them together in a different way. And they said, isn't that pretty? We did that ourselves. Yeah. And see, that's the system that I followed for years. Um, well, you almost had no choice because there right. wasn't anything English that wasn't like this. This is the Anglophile Tarot. This is what the English-speaking Tarot became because these guys made sure that they papered the floor and all the walls and the ceiling with their own writing. And there wasn't really room for anybody else to have much to say until we got to the 70s and the psychedelic revolution set loose all these wonderful artists to re-envision it. Now, in Europe, it was considered just a normal thing for an artist to do sometime during their schooling to make a tarot deck of their own. Now, they didn't all expect it to be an esoteric deck with all the bells and whistles, but they... It was just, it's just kind of traditional in the art world. If you're mature, you demonstrate it by being able to make a whole deck, 78 cards, which is a heck of a lot of work. Yeah. And it all has to have these internal consistencies and have, you know, some kind of overall design. I mean, you're proving your ability to decorate the mind with the full spectrum of seminal ideas. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And so even if you're not an esotericist yourself, you're making a tarot deck in a culture, in a... In a, in a uh, cultural context that is very rich with this history. And America is not a cultural context that's rich with the history of Tarot. America is a Protestant. Um, well, Tarot has been extremely, like, watered down. I, I'm not saying that you can't, you can divine with rocks and sticks if you want to, but to me, uh, it's, it's like, why, I don't know. I bought the Hermetic Tarot deck today. I actually went out because I always wanted that when I went out and grabbed it. And uh, I started looking at the shelf, all these different decks, and was thinking, man, there, there are decks that have, like, comic book characters. I'm looking at some in the chat room and stuff. And, I mean, I want to know what's real about the Arcana. There's actually a question in the chat room about the, the, 22, uh, the 22 Arcana. Like, what's the big deal about it? Where does it come from? And that's a genuine question. But if you get on YouTube right. and you go look at all the decks they have out there, you're just going to be baffled or you're going to give up. You're not even going to worry about it, you know. And you'll just buy the best seller and you won't realize you just got sold down the river. Um, but here's, if, if you have or anybody has, um, each one of my books has this chart in it. Any book that I've ever written or will ever write will have this chart in it um, representing the number letter matrix, 1 through 22, with the sacred alphabet, whether it's in Greek or Latin or Hebrew or uh, Arabic, um, these values are thousands of years old, this matrix of number letters, right? And there are 22 of them originally. And those are the 22 trumps. And there is a literal correspondence between the first one in the sequence and the one that's numbered one. And the first letter of the alphabet. And the first stage of the journey. Okay? So when you're operating from this multi-thousand-year-old alphanumeric point of view, you start the sequence from one. And there... There is no zero. There's no letter zero from any ancient alphabet, from any of it, anywhere in the magical tradition. So the magical tradition works with positive numbers only or positive values only. It does not, it understands there is a premise about the nothing, but it does not build that into the praxis of magic. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So there is no worship of zero. 
There is no putting the fool first. The fool ends up last in the sequence. And the, the English habit of putting the fool first and then giving it the number one and it the letter A, starting the alphabet with the fool instead of the magus, is their quote-unquote innovation. But it basically breaks the model. So the Golden Dawn putting the zero in with the fool just pretty much... And putting the fool first and putting the fool first in the alphabet, giving it the A and making it number one. They put zero on the card and then it's number one in the sequence. <laughs> you know, so in every way, your mind is being twisted just so. Yeah, because just I got to tell you, like when I first... And we're, about to, we're up against the top of the hour here, but when, when I first got your deck and I started looking at the correspondences, I was like, what? This is so different. This is so different. I mean, I, I, look, I've got every Golden Dawn and Rosicrucian deck there is known to man. I practiced with them. Uh, I divined with them. I've done everything with them. So when, when this comes along and throws, a, I guess, a, a wrench in the spoke, so to speak, it, it kind of made my heart drop to my stomach a little bit, but then at the same time, I was like, yeah, but this is, there's some real information here. And so now, and this is what I kind of want to talk about in the next hour, how we decide which road to go down or what system works for us. And and I, I, before we go into the break, I'm just curious, is this the deck that you use all the time, the one that you guys, that you two made? Well, yeah, at this point, it has now replaced any other model in my brain, but I learned it from Eliphas Levi and the French school. This is the basic, you know, what I called in 1985 the Alexandrian model, the, the Greek-Hebrew splice. But we could talk, we don't need to talk about that too much. Um, but, yes, I did this so that I didn't have to wrestle with other people's tarot decks in the middle of a reading. Okay, cool. Because I know what when the correspondences are broken. So you can certainly read with any deck, but when somebody's presenting me with a bad mix of astrology and title and number, when I know how it should be, then I'm, I have to struggle to reconcile this thing. And I've been doing most of my career since 1970 with that problem. So I was so grateful Michael came along and I could set it all to right. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are are going. If anybody really delves into the tarot and the history of it, I think a lot of people were going to be extremely grateful for this deck. This is a very uh, underestimated, in my opinion, deck, and it shouldn't be. By most occultists that study the tarot, it's not underestimated at all. But for newbies and stuff, if you're listening to this and you really want to figure out the history of the tarot, grab this deck, grab our books. We're going to take our break. We'll be right back after this. Christine Payne Tyler's with us tonight. We'll also open up the phone lines if you guys got any questions. You got to have a question about the tarot to win the tickets, though, for our guest tonight. We'll be right back. More Lighting the Void coming up. Stay with us.
This is the Rogie Report News on the Fringe FM. I'm Jess Rogie. If you've been on the internet in the past couple of weeks, you may have seen that life on Venus has been reported. And according to Scientific America, a NASA probe may have found life 40 years ago on Venus. Rakesh Mogul, a professor of biology chemistry at the California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, says, We were able to extract some data from literature from about 40 years ago, and we think we're able to identify some interesting things. We believe that the evidence suggests the presence of phosphine. So it sounds like the data was there. Scientists just did not know what they were looking for. When you think of the word Jedi, perhaps images of Obi-Wan Kenobi or Luke Skywalker come to mind. But the Jedi I'm talking about has nothing to do with Star Wars. This Jedi is an acronym for Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure. And recently, the Pentagon's chief information officer's shop teamed up with armed services to prepare for the move to the Jedi cloud. And that's not Cloud City. According to C4IS.net, the Jedi Cloud contract was originally awarded to Microsoft over Amazon Web Services 11 months ago, and then was halted by a federal judge in February. The court case remains unsolved. Dana Deasy, the Pentagon's chief information officer, said the services must identify the tools, integration environments, and directories that need to be set up to connect users to the cloud when it's available. What will Jedi do? The DoD's cloud system will allow warfighters to access data quickly and consolidate data and develop artificial intelligence. Using data for joint warfighting efforts is the top priority of the department's forthcoming data strategy, which DZ said he expects to be released within the next 30 days. So I guess I'll be updating this story in about less than 30 days, or in the next 30 days. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. Deadline.com reports the Pennsylvania home featured in the award-winning 1991 film The Silence of the Lambs is for sale. The three-story Princess Anne Victorian served as the home of the insane serial killer Buffalo Bill in the film. The film crew spent three days shooting on location... And you too can have this house for just under $300,000. This is the Rogie Report News on the Fringe FM. AncientLifeOil.com. That's AncientLifeOil.com. Are you stressed? I mean, who isn't? Anxiety creeping in? No, not that. Is sleep hard to attain because your brain just won't slow down? We're living in crazy times and the fear knob has been turned up. Okay, there's an answer. Take a big breath. Exhale and go log on to ancientlifeoil.com. CBD, broad and full spectrum, organic and non-GMO CBD for you to enjoy. Change your tune from fear to calm, from brain overload to clear thinking. 0.003 THC on full spectrum and 0% THC on broad spectrum. Competitive pricing with the best quality. Also know everything is going to get better. No worries. Be happy. CBD can help calm so your nerves don't think they're a six-string electric guitar. Enjoy life, smile, and log on to AncientLifeOil.com for great CBD. That's AncientLifeOil.com. You'll be glad you did. Stardate, October 8th.
From the far southern United States, the two brightest stars in the night sky stair-step up the south at dawn. The brighter one is Sirius, which is visible from the entire country. The other is Canopus, which is just above the horizon. Canopus was host to the planet Arrakis in the novel Dune. Its author was born 100 years ago today in Tacoma, Washington. Frank Herbert was interested in books from an early age and in science fiction. And he was a free thinker. He didn't graduate from college, for example, because he didn't want to take the required classes to complete a major. Herbert spent three decades as a journalist. He published his first science fiction work in 1952. He didn't make much money, though, so his wife wrote ads for department stores to support them. Dune was first published in a magazine in the early 1960s. Herbert then rewrote it and shopped it to book publishers. About 20 rejected it before it was picked up by a company that mainly sold auto repair manuals. Dune told the story of galactic intrigue. It centered on Arrakis, a desert planet that contained the most valuable commodity in the galaxy, a spice that made interstellar navigation possible. The novel was one of the first to promote the idea of protecting the environment. Dune became one of the best-selling sci-fi novels in history. Roughly 20 million copies have been sold, all set on a world around the second brightest star in the night sky. We have more sky-watching tips, astronomy news, and much more about the universe in Stardate magazine. Details at stardate.org. For the McDonald Observatory, I'm Billy Henry. I'm getting older and noticing that my body just doesn't work as well as it used to. So I like to keep fit as possible by hitting the gym a few times a week. Recently, I started having a nagging bicep pain and it got so bad I couldn't even lift the weights. When I was complaining about it to a friend, he told me about Angioprim. He said chelation helps remove toxins, heavy metals, and cholesterol in veins and arteries that may cause blockages. You know, after just one week of taking Angioprim, the pain was gone and now I'm back in the gym full strength. Scientific research proves the active ingredient in angioprim has superior oral chelation action that helps promote cardiovascular health. So to learn more, go to angioprim.com. That's A-N-G-I-O-P-R-I-M.com. Or talk to a trained consultant. Call angioprim toll-free at 945-882-7221. You'll feel better with more energy. That's 945-882-7221. Or go to the website, angioprim.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I don't know all the answers to the questions about reality.
I am a Ford Walker. Hey, this is Macon, and you're listening to Lighting the Void with Joe Root. Back to Lighting the Void. I'm your host, Joe Root. You want to win tickets to thefringefest.com? You must have a question for our guest tonight, Kristen Payne Towler, about the tarot, divination, or anything in esotericism. You can call 1 800 588 to win those tickets. And it'll be totally worth it, by the way. Um, so here's the thing. You just heard Macon talk about being a void walker. And uh, there is a thing called divination. If you're just tuning in to this show, we do discuss this on this broadcast. A tool that you can use to not only help you discover where you're at, but to ground you, center you, help you make decisions of your for your future, for your spiritual self. But there is a lot, as I stated before, early in the top of the first hour, There's a lot of stuff out there trying to keep us down, to keep us feeling uncertain and hopeless and scared. And that's that's old news. I believe in the next five years that's going to go out and you're going to have to make a decision. Because you're not going to be able to fight the powers that be with weapons and, you know, guns or whatever that you think you are, your political ideas. You're going to have to learn how to tap into your spirit consciousness, the out-of-body experience, the esoteric traditions, the mystics that have been handing down this stuff to us since the beginning of time. This is how we empower ourselves. It's the only way. And I believe nature is trying to show us that right now. It's trying to force that into us. Our guest tonight, Christian Payne Towler, is the co-creator of the Tarot of the Holy Light, which is one of my favorite tarot decks now, and also author of a few books, that I've begun to read, The Foundations of the Esoteric Tradition, which is the Tarot of the Holy Light, Book 2, and The Underground Stream, Esoteric Tarot Revealed. Fascinating stuff. And earlier in the broadcast, by the way, thanks. I want to say thanks again for coming on the show. It really is a special broadcast for me, and I know a few listeners, so thank you for coming on, Christine. Oh, I really appreciate it, Joe. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm glad your listeners are tuning in. Earlier you mentioned the grid. Now I'm I'm thinking, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but this is, are you speaking of the sexagesimal grid of the mysteries that you wrote about in your book? Yes, I am. I'm thinking about a particular mathematical model that allows um, the visualizing practitioner to envision themselves in a spherical and um, cyclical reality. So it's actually the art of memory, is what it was called historically, that would uh, conduct a person, they would, they would build their own interior world with all the significances of the esoteric paradigm 
And in so doing, they would be connecting themselves to all the other esotericists of time and space. So, for example, every astronomer who stands on the ground is standing in the footsteps of every other astronomer anywhere in the world who's looking at the same planet. We're saying if you can get yourself in the right frequency, you can have communion with all of those who share this thought form. So this is what time travel actually is. It's, it's travel of consciousness through the matrix. And the matrix has to do with this body of correspondences that's hung on the astronomy. It's hung on the astronomy, but it stretches down into the material world and shows up around us as the daily synchronicities and as the calendar and as our birth charts and as our tarot cards. So it's been broken down fractal-wise, you know, shrunk down, shrunk down, and miniaturized so that we can hold this pack of game chips in our hand or have a computer make an astrology chart for us and all the considerations are summarized right there along with their unique configuration at the moment. So you have this amazing synthesis of thousands of years of mathematical and experiential learning showing up in your hands and as a, either by a computer or as a computer. The Tarot is a medieval computer, but we now use our, um, you know, Internet and all of its capacities to be the same tool that the Tarot deck was. And for the astronomers, they have their table of planetary motions and their mathematical calculations, and they could derive charts and therefore predict what was happening. So there's many different ways to do this. Some people threw dice. Some people worked with cowrie shells. You know, there's a million technologies, runes, and um, just wherever you look, people are very creatively setting up matrices so that they can scan the odds, right? The matrix, for example, the astrology chart or the spread you're using to throw your cards into, it presupposes a certain set of values and worldviews already before you even put any cards in it. The, the pattern you're going to throw the cards into already preconditions the experiment. So the search for spreads is as important as the search for decks because uh. you want to use spreads that... Um, really are in conformity with your own thinking. When I was young, the way I worked with that was to study the properties of the numbers. You know, the ancient philosophers realized that numbers can't lie. Right. And they can't mutate. But they do have tremendous potency, especially when they combine and then build up and break down again and show you their facets. So in the midst of studying all these other things, I was really arrested by sacred geometry, which turns out to be the theory of light and sound and color and the different angles and aspects in the birth chart and, um, you know, different qualities of emotional and psychic energy in the chakras. So somehow I got attracted right from the beginning 
to the thing that is in coherence, in coherence with the light, even as many times as it bounces around and reflects it off of the things of the descending um, scales, it continues to be this ray of light conducted lower by lower by these different mirrors. The mirrors, you could call them the planets, you could call them angels, you could call them stages of the seasonal year, you could call them the four directions. You know, at every level between the cosmos and here, there are different qualifiers that the light comes through and is conditioned by, but that the light is our direct umbilicus to the divine mind. And that's why I, I am of the persuasion that the French school and the earlier Tarot's before the English modification are superior because they work, like I said, with positive numbers and the sexagesimal grid. And that's my tuning fork. That's how I know. If I find a practitioner, when I'm studying through history, if I find a practitioner who understands the sexagesimal grid and is showing unmistakable signs of knowing it, then I'll study that person. Wow. That way I don't lose time. I mean, I'm 68 now. I've been doing this since 1970. This takes time. This is archaeology, right, and, and synthesis, uh, trying to catch our magical ancestors in the act of externalizing this ancient worldview. First of all, has been the process of trying to just carry it through history with, against all the attacks of the secular world and the Catholic Church and <clears throat> the wars between the religions. You know, all this stuff is a cover, like a political cover, for these wars of wizards who wanted to own the esoteric paradigm and wanted to undo what the shamans of other tribes were doing. You know, we have had this competitive streak ever since ever. And it's, maybe it's because, like I said before, we suffered these inevitable cataclysms from time to time where, you know, something happens on the planet that is so disruptive that the, the whole ecosystem has to go through a massive uh, breakdown and reset. And so we don't have the luxury of total continuity. We have these blips, a period where we make fast progress, but we're very unfairly civilized and you know pretty intensely savage all the way up to the end. And then just as we're dawning on what's going on, we fall back into the miasma again because of the planetary setbacks. So I don't really know what's going to happen this time, but I understand when I'm looking at it, uh, these relics of ancient high civilizations. And there are physicists now who believe that the Hebrew alphabet is actually a technological marvel in, in how much information is encoded into it, especially information yeah. about the um, solar circuit. There's a lot of, and you know what, and I can say from a magical point of view too, either through scrying or dreaming or the out-of-body experience, I mean, look, there's some good stuff that the Golden Dawn taught, but they got it from other people, let's be honest, right? And they, when they talked about tracing certain Hebrew letters or even planetary glyphs, when you come into contact with certain things in your dreams or when you're scrying or visions, it's not a joke. That stuff's pretty powerful. Right. 
It's really That's powerful. right. And the other thing about magic is when I realized that I never could find anything about zero in the historical magic and that, you know, bringing the zero in and putting it at the head of the alphabet was, you know, completely irrational if you were making citations to historical magic. You know, so all the emphasis on D and Levi and all that is just meaningless if you are splicing a modern point of view on zero over the top of everything. So when I, that cognitive dissonance really helped keep me away from overindulging in the English model and just kept me looking back at, you know, what would my French teachers say or what would the Rosicrucians say? What what was in common, what was the common denominator in the first 500 years of Tarot before we got the, ninth, uh, the 20th century and got all this competitive, uh, my version is better than your version. There didn't used to be versions that way. There was the number letter sequence of the 22. There was the um, you know playing card-like deck of four suits, one through 10, and then four royals instead of three. But that model, uh, it's been very stable and very sturdy and hasn't required anybody to come in and remodel it for all these years. And especially if, like, like I said, if you're going to be quoting the ancestral magi, and especially back into the years B.C., um, you can't do that with a big goose egg in the middle of everything you're doing. Yeah, right. You know, right. Not, not only that, Crowley came in and... and Twisted it again. I know you know what I'm right. talking about, right? So he added another kink yeah, into the had, correspondences. Yeah. His level of disdain for his audience was so strong that I couldn't read his stuff. And he and Waite did the translations of Eliphas Levi's work, did the lion's share of the translations, anything that they found valuable in Levi, they translated themselves, and then they put in footnotes and... Um, revisions and stuff that were completely wicked. So that was another way that I could see that they, uh, this lineage was a bunch of posers, you know, who had no respect for the people who were going to come afterwards. Of course, the original group fell apart very quickly. Yeah. Um, so to the Frau Sprengel event and Levi, and they just, you know, they're, they attracted too much attention and it blew them up. But then it became a commercial product, and whoever owns the copyright to these things has made mint like crazy and made sure to drive it out there. So here I am, you know, as since the 80s and particularly the 90s when I was at Tarot L and writing all these arguments, the arguments that led up to these books, um, I was just told over and over again that I was an idiot and a fool and that Levi was an idiot and a fool. And since they couldn't trace behind him, since all of so much of his work was coming through the Masons and the Martinists and the Rosicrucians, that they just figured, you can't talk about that. That's not legit to talk about. We're only interested in the external history. We don't believe those mumbo-jumbo guys. So poor Levi has had to wait, and I've had to wait, and we're just finally coming around to it now as people are getting tired of the, you know, faux model that they cut their teeth on. Yeah, I mean, like, that's basically what, look, there's, like I said, there's a ton of information in the Golden Dawn, but it is kind of, it is 
like cutting your teeth and and even some of the 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 modern i would say wiccan groups and things like that they based all of that i mean where do you think they got the watchtower stuff from which actually goes back to you know uh right. yeah, yeah john d and stuff but still that's where they got it from and or they got it from coley who got it from the golden dawn yeah yeah and so and, and it's really watered down, and when people really want to find the truth about it, they get perplexed, and they either give up or they just kind of pick something, you know. And uh, I just want to know the real truth of it. And that is when, that's when you have to commit, you know what I mean, to it, like you did. Yes, that's right. You have to submit to it. You have to follow it where it goes. You have to make certain executive decisions that I'm not going to just do what would be convenient and easy, but I'm going to actually believe these guys at their word and act like they're not lying to me. This is one of the bad things about the 20th century, and you really put your finger on it when you're talking about that kind of um, malevolent, dark, billowing smoke in the background where you kind of get that whiff of sulfur and everybody's talking about the dark side, um, that I'm not interested in that. And my parents are uh, psychotherapists and criminologists. And, you know, I think that's where the evil in humanity is inculcated, is when you're, you know, cruel and abusive and you're torturing people for not enough reward, you know. So... I've been sad to see so much human potential go over the fall. Oh, yeah, me too. These guys knew. They knew they were uh, throwing garbage in the stream, and they did it anyway because it boosted their egos. And so I suppose that all that exists to take people who are likely to use it for the wrong reasons and just get them siloed over in a corner where they can't do themselves too much damage. Now, I'm going to ask a question that, you know, we both probably know the answer to this, but I think a lot of listeners are curious about this when it comes to the tarot. This is from James Salcedo in the Fringe FM chat. He says, I admire all the research that goes into the creation of these tarot decks, but I'm wondering if you're reaching out toward the divine source, the spiritual realm, the other, whatever, how much does it matter which deck you use? I don't mean any disrespect by that, but I'm just curious. That's kind of question. what we've talked about the whole time, but I guess in no, no, layman's terms. It's a good question because the art itself, remember I told you the Tarot is a catalog of art. It's also a catalog of astrological correspondences. It's a catalog of numeric ideas. You know, it has multiple, it's an astronomical uh, calculator. So you can use it any of these different ways, and in each way it educates your mind differently. So what you'll find, and this is especially the proponents of the 20th century Tarot, is that they are using it for what the art will do to the subconscious. Exactly. Right. So from that point of view, you find the most evocative deck you can find, and you don't worry about correspondences, you don't worry about the politics of the writer, and you don't even focus your eyes on the fine print. You go into... The, what it evokes in you in terms of consciousness. Like you notice in the Tarot of the Holy Light, Michael challenged himself, or I challenged him, and he took up the challenge to um, stay in the elemental world and be very sensual with the elements and make sure that the images inside of a given card come from that element, 
you know, so all of the air signs, the suit swords, is full of air signatures and activities going on in the heavens and in in the uh, a larger, you know, above the surface of the earth. Or the earth signs are all using models that foam right up out of the soil. You know, he just carefully constructed that as a part of the subtext so that then when I wrote about them, I could keep those metaphors that are appropriately anchored in the necessary element. And we did the same thing with the royals and the trumps because I, you know, have studied these grids and what goes into, you know, the construction, the mathematical construction of the deck. I don't know if I mentioned this to you or if you realize this, but I'm the person who wrote the text for the 20-year website, Tarot.com. Oh, wow. first uh, public vending, Tarot vending machine in the world, and it's still going like crazy. And um, so I had to prove to myself in the late 90s, I was in the middle of writing that book, The Underground Stream, when they came and brought me the proposal. And I basically had to break the Tarot down and everything that I do in a Tarot reading, I mean, every little scrap of activity that I do in a tarot reading to make coherence out of the throw of the cards, I had to rationalize and then write. And I had to design it because nobody else thought it was possible to do. Um, And it was so speculative that they, you know, were willing to give me a royalty if I could get it to work. But nobody paid me to do this. We just all worked on it together. And when it came out, it's been this amazing piece of work and there's a whole library over there of not only my writings but also most of my first book but also another friend contributed a huge amount of his research so there is a library section at the site tarot.com where you're going to find a lot of um, historical references all around the subject of tarot and everything that tarot evokes so wow. I, I had to know from a mathematical and from a computational point of view how all the ingredients of the spread as well as the cards could be woven together so that a person could get a coherent reading that would never be the same twice and it would address the full, full spectrum of possibilities without ever having any human intervention. And let me tell you that pissed off the, the uh, Internet psychics terribly. So a lot of people were angry with me, and then a lot of people immediately jumped on board and copied it because they figured out from what I did how they could do it. But, you know, it costs millions of dollars to have somebody to compose something like that now because it's, so, it's very sophisticated. I really had to know the grid before I could reproduce it for a computer. And luckily, there was an excellent engineer whose family was in Tetro. His grandmother had been a user, and so he truly understood some of the considerations I needed him to understand. And so that was a great and super creative time of mine, just before a great fall, you know, as often is the case. Yeah, right. So yeah. com because it supported me through um, what followed afterwards and right up to this point. 
um, I, I really feel like when you give yourself over to the right project, you know, when you're leaning into what the universe wants you to do, even if it taxes you massively, you have to say yes, because we really are on a, an evolutionary cusp. And if people don't let go of the known and reach for what could be the incoming better idea, then we'll be stuck fighting the last battle all the time. And I certainly want the Tarot to go forward in time without, um, you know, having to be constantly untangling itself from the messy 20th century. So I feel like that's part of my responsibility. And whether I was any of these previous guys or not, you know, whether I have had people in the orders tease me that I'm the reincarnated Madame Blavatsky, but it doesn't matter those things don't matter. What matters is that when people arrive at their work, whatever that work is, that they pick up the tools and do it. You right. Know? And, and see, I, you, what you're talking about right there, I believe, is something that the tarot can help you see, right? Like when you feel stuck in a cycle and you keep doing that last battle and you don't know why you're here, you hear that all the time, what's my purpose? What am I supposed to do here? A lot of times you could lay down some cards with the right spread. And if you know how to study the symbolism, it's going to tell you, it's going to show you the cycle that you keep repeating and what you need to do to get out of it. You know? Okay. Yeah. Here, let's say something real practical for everybody who's listening. Uh, what I suggest to all my students is they start a journal with their birth chart as the first page. And as they're watching the moon go around and the other planets, which is itself a project just to keep checking in to see where things are. Um, they can keep uh, notes on their readings and then carry, as, as was designed to do in my deck, carry the symbolism on the cards back to your birth chart and see where that lands in your personal constellation. So instead of just reading the card for its generic meaning, which is kind of what I wrote for Tarot.com, the, you know, all the infinite possible number of combinations um, of basic divinatory reading for the cards. But it gets, you know, much more three-dimensional when you take the information, the little segment of the astrology matrix that this card governs, and carry, go back to your birth chart and say, okay, where does that fall in my chart? Where is that now? You know, what's going on in that area? And um, it is invariably directly coordinated. And this is one of the ways I told you I have this tuning fork that I use to help me discriminate what's operative and therefore worth studying versus what's just another bloviator uh, building up his, you know, talking his book. And bloviator. So. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> There's the a lot of those around, huh? For sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, this is kind of the point. I think that, you know, like people, and I'm glad that you talk about young and stuff because this is why we call a show Lighting the Void because it's like the deeper we go into this, the I don't want to say the bigger the void gets and the, the less answers we have, but it's more like, it's more like the field of consciousness grows bigger, but the same laws are flowing through it. 
And that's right. It's all fractal. Large yeah. and small are just um, reflections of each other up and down the chain of being. Yeah, so then it's like, well, what am I capable of? Who am I really? What is this about? Right. And that's, these, these questions, I've talked to so many people on this broadcast. It doesn't matter if it's scientists, physicists, uh, you, you name it, occultists, authors. They all have those questions. And, you know, the funny thing is, is when we actually get into conscious exploration in the realms of magic and stuff, you had guys like Crowley that I think really messed things up because they wanted to show the world that I'm a dark man and play against the media and blow up their ego and scare everybody when what he should have been doing was empowering everybody to evolve consciously. And if that would have happened, we would be here. But he claimed that he is. But bringing down the new Aeon and saying do without wilt is above love or it's exactly what love is, it kind of messes with people, you know? And, and then yeah, it's a distortion. It's a distortion. He was trying to hook in with um, what Levi was teaching about love. But one of the things that people missed and that I'm just getting the sense of now because of another deck that I've been working with um, is that the Renaissance encountered astronomy through Arabic astronomy because the Greek stuff wasn't even translated until the 20th or the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. So the, it was Arabic astrology and Arabic magic that hit Europe with a big boom after the Crusades. And the uh, grimoire tradition was fueled by translations coming in from Spain before the 1492 shutdown. Um, Spain was the place where Islamic, Jewish, and Christian civilizations coexisted. Uh, sometimes more fractiously, sometimes less so. When the Catholics weren't being restless and, you know, running a crusade uh, in Spain, then everybody was getting along. But um, it was Islamic magic and Islamic astronomy that is the foundation of the Western uh, Western esotericism. And that in that model, the force, the glue that holds the world together is love and attraction rather than the duality and the opposites repelling each other. Now, now the funny thing is, um, this is just, I live on an island in the Columbia River. So at one end of the island, the river comes upon the land and it splits and goes around. And you could say one side is very different than the other. And it is because they let the ships travel on one side and they let the they leave the other side for the migrating waterfowl. So we definitely have two streams, and they're each truly unique. But on the other side of the island, the streams come back together again. So it's the same river, and the two are only two for a while. And so you can say, oh, two is about division, but all two is also about reunion and the return to oneness again. And so when you see mystics teaching the number two as God and the devil or good versus evil or masculine positive feminine negative then you know you're stuck in the binary thought form of the Judeo-Christian world whereas Levi was trying to draw our attention over to the Arabic point of view 
that says, no, the number two means we can have a reunion now, or now we can add the opposites together and have, you know, a whole that's greater than the sum of the parts. So they're on the on the side of the return rather than the side of the division. Okay. Well, speaking of that, I'm going to ask you a question that I think you're going to understand where I'm going with this. How did you and Michael come to be? Um, both of us were having horrible divorces at the end of the 90s and didn't know each other at all because he was in Seattle and I was in um, Eugene, Oregon. Uh-huh. But mine was accompanied by a neurological crash of a condition that I've had since before I was born, but never had a diagnosis because there was no words for it until the turn of the last century, the turn of the 2000s. So I had to go up to, to Seattle to get neurological therapy to put myself back together. And so it was the equivalent of like having a stroke, but it wasn't that violent. It was just stress. Right. Ripped my brain in half and turned my left eye on, and it was the result of a surgery. Anesthesia, who knew? The anesthesia changes your brain, and it really did a number on me. But I got to reassemble myself up with the uh, this amazing team in Seattle, and that's when I met Michael. We were put together by the Times dating pool. I was in the Seattle Times, and he was in the High Times, and we were shown each other lots and lots of times, right? At, I guess it was 2005, the end of 2005, beginning of 2006. So... Now, both, were both of you practicing uh, mystics or, or uh, uh, occultists or esotericists, whatever you want to call yourselves? Only me. I mean, yeah. Only me. He was working in the cartooning field. He was an editor for Fantagraphics cartoons and Fantagraphics... Um, book publisher and they're they're not so much into comics anymore they're into graphic novels and literature but he ran a whole division of their production at that time and was editing uh compilations and uh, uh juggling artists anchors uh line line writers uh content writers, you know, and he would conceptualize the volume and then put it together and choose the cover and color it. So he was doing the capstones with the covers, the outside front and back, or uh, maybe he'd put a selection of his own work sometimes, but he was managing other artists in in this production sequence of at uh, Fantagraphics. So, so did, would you say that in order for you to, and I hate to cut you off there, but in order for you guys to, because the time, just time, that's all, sorry about that. But in, in right. order for the work to come together that you were here to do, that that river of you and him had to come together at some point. That's right. And we both had to be broken out of what we were doing before. He was a career musician and um, had been running all over the West Coast with contrabands and electric bands and, and, uh, as a writer and performer of music, and so Fantagraphics, and coming into himself as an artist, that had been a hobby and something that he'd done on the side. But what it, what it taught him was how to lead the eye. You know, he's a master of one-panel cartoons, and that's what you have in his tarot deck. It's 78 one-panel cartoons where he is expertly taking a hold of your gaze and drawing you through that landscape in order to... Uh, make you see what's there. 
Yeah. And of course, he's a, he's an expert surrealist too, because these cartoonists are you know notoriously crazy people. So there's always more there than you think, and they're you know joking with you as they're very seriously exploding your brain while you're looking at their work. So this is the perfect modern analogy to the alchemical art. Right. And if and, anybody studied scrying and they say, well, you know, use the tarot cards to scry and you could go into the tarot card and, you know, I'm not going to go down that road. You look at the Rider weight deck and you look at this deck and tell me which one you think you're going to have a better time or better understanding when scrying with. Like this is, this is... <laughs> This is meant for Well, you know, know, we come from the psychedelic generation. And so, um, you know, the first time we went, as we were dating, we had to cruise each other's stacks, right? Because you get bibliophiles dating bibliophiles, and they got to look at each other's books. Yeah, so yeah. he found my uh, shelf, and he started opening up these compilations of alchemical art. And I said, don't these look like tarot cards on steroids? <laughs> Don't they look like characters of Tarot jumped off the cards and started getting into extracurricular adventures? And he said, yeah. And then he took all his, you know, my books over to his place and started scanning things. And that's where this came from. It, I did not ask him to make me a deck. He did this out of his own, this volcano of creativity that came up to the center of himself. And he had been carrying images of the cards around with him because he learned when he was young that, you know, Again, in Europe, a person would con not consider them a mature artist until they had at least attempted to make a tarot deck. So he had been feeling that inside of himself. When will I, when will I do this? And so when we got together then, in our 50s, so that meant we had over 100 years of experience standing between us when we started. Wow. Yeah, see, that's amazing. Through any of those previous stages, we just went cold into it as adults. And that's what you see in, um, in alchemical art as well. There are no children. Alchemical couples, the women had to agree, no servants, no children. You know, we're working with scary substances here. Any of us could be poisoned at any time. Mm -hmm. We don't want birth defects, and we don't want anybody tattling on what we're doing. So it's very... It was a very monastic life for those uh, people that actually had partners. Well, you're still alive. You're doing good. So, We're I mean, doing good. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. we pulled it off. I've, I've lost a couple of friends in doing that work, actually. But I've also know some people that some couples that I got to tell you, they don't that one of them is almost 80 years old and he looks like he's 40. All right, so I don't, I don't want to go down that road and get into it because it's. I think you know what I'm talking about. This, this. I mean, maybe I could do a show on like that and energy and stuff one day. But it's like alchemy, and I'll just leave it here. Is the one thing that you could use where it it gives you evidence of these cycles. You know, it gives you evidence of this because stuff. It's premised on astronomy. The alchemists, are, they never do any work without being completely embedded in the astrological model. They pick their times, they pick their circumstances in order to magically charge what they're doing. And these are the guys that actually, uh, again, inspired by the Arabic uh, skill with crystals and lenses, uh, they, they figured out how to charge their work with celestial energies. And of course, the operator is the lens. 
So they were doing what other people weren't doing um, in, in terms of inserting themselves into the, the process through arts of consciousness. And again, you have to be able to visualize yourself into it, and that's why it's called a memory art, the art of memory, where it's your vi visualization is built internally. And you know, when I talk to my students about this, you know, I, I often will say, your body is your spaceship, and what you have to do is set it all up so that it will go anywhere you want to go and, and tell you anything you need to be told and, you know, have all the senses necessary for you to navigate the territories you want to go in. So where in the Middle Ages they would think about building a castle and putting everything that they wanted to learn in, and know in the castle, and then they would walk through the castle and review the, everything they'd stored there. But in modern times, really, you're, this is a chariot. You know, your, your personality and your ego is your horse and carriage. And they go with you and they take you everywhere you need to go. So our work is to get fitted to the vehicle that we're in because the senses that we have, even if they don't match anybody else's, they're perfect for what we came to do. If we would take our natural design considerations more seriously, we would find ourselves uh, less engaged in fighting. You know, we'd be able to have the grace to be more curious and experimental. We wouldn't be, you know, all the time offending and defending and, uh, you know, engaged in the struggle aspect because we wouldn't have to carry all this paranoia and, uh, you know, cynicism with us. We'd, we'd be resting comfortably in our body, believing ourselves. Right. You know, not full of spooks. Yeah, that's what I'm up against. You know exactly what I meant when I said that then, right? Like, we're in the podcasting and media world, especially in this genre, there's there's not a whole lot of empowerment, especially on the occult side. And if there is, it's usually things like chaos magic, sigil magic, some of the modern stuff, things like that. It, uh, but, it, I mean, it all goes back to the same thing. But the, the mass majority of even Black Sabbath will tell you this when they change their name from Earth to Black Sabbath was to get, there's something about the power of spooking people that creates the masses to come forward. And see, so what I'm trying to do right. is figure out how to twist that so I don't have to scare the hell out of everybody to get them to understand this stuff, you know. Well, you know, the when I read the Rosicrucian and Masonic uh, uh, information on this subject, they talk about glamour. They talk about the glamour of... Um, prestidigitation, you know, the the people who can sling the terminology and make it sound as if it's real, you know they're blowing smoke because they don't themselves possess the knowledge that they appear to be talking about, but they've, they've learned how to juggle the vocabulary artfully. Right. And they've learned how to pose and, you know, deflect serious questions. So... You know, it's another use for these skills, the use that makes for camouflage and confounding as opposed to revealing and unveiling. So I know what you mean. I had to decide when I was young whether I was going to be deconstructive or, or evolutionary. And um, because we, you know, Thoreau was at a crossing point where at the point that I picked it up, 50% of everything you could find or more in the English-speaking languages 
uh, English-speaking regions, it was the sellout carpetbagger decks. You know, now luckily Europe is coming back, and I hope I've helped encourage that. There's more attention to the older decks, and the European um, historians are starting to fill in the missing chapters. But it really has been hard because. You know, as soon as you say Masonic and Rosicrucian, then people turn their backs. Yeah, they because... like cringe. Ooh, yeah. Well, I've now. Yeah, right. It turned into the enemy. Yeah. Right, and I've I've made it a well, and I want to talk to you about this for the last few minutes. A couple of things, just real quick before we we let you go, is you know I've made it a point to talk about you know my Rosicrucian heritage kind of here and like what I've studied and what I believe about it. But I got to tell you, the more I look into this. The more I understand uh, these, uh, I guess I would say hermetic or natural laws, it doesn't seem to fit with history, especially when it comes to uh, magicians. Because when you look into masonry, the the fraternities of masonry, the blatant, uh, I guess you could say, patronizing of things, when the real wisdom is in, like you you discussed, when it comes to the wisdom of Sophia, understanding the feminine energy and also you know the matriarchs that were in this and every time one of these great magicians actually did anything great in their life um other than i would say john d there was always a female presence there to channel or create something and they don't really talk about that much well i guess they do now more but you see where i'm going with this this is what's kind of stifled the imbalance and i'm not trying to push feminism i'm just saying things have been imbalanced for a very long time well, and in antiquity, theosophy and theology are are uh, a pair. Theology is the uh, divine logos, which would be the male part of the mind, and theosophy is the divine Sophia, which is the female part of the mind. So this is the right eye and the left eye of the supernal triangle in Kabbalah. So we have the two brains, both the Logos brain of logic and yeah. science and the Sophia brain of intuition and pattern recognition. And they're the right and left eyes in the energetic and electric body. So that is embedded in all the traditions, whether it's um, shamanic or Judeo-Christian or Chinese or Native American. There's a version of this revelation because the actual human soul is androgynous and is a is an intertwinement of both. But in terms of culture, he's well, this pulse. Western so, specifically, you know, is what I'm looking at here. Where so if you take Freemasonry, right? Um, I, I know it's a fraternity, but to me, once you really start studying this stuff, like these guys, they just go into higher and higher groups anyways and get more secretive as they go up. So why would you leave out women? I know they created co-masonry now, right? I know you've uh, wrote about that too. But it, Well, and in France and in Europe, there were, especially in France, there were uh, co-masonic lineages from older times too. But, you know, unfortunately, the kind of women who could belong into these things couldn't... Um, make it public because the church would say you're a harlot you know you're consorting with men you're away from your husband or you have no husband and yeah. you know so especially older women who had fortunes and educations and who were you know had minds just like ours 
some of them definitely found their way. This is Madame Blavatsky. She was not exactly the only one, but she happened to be raised in a Masonic library, so like myself, she got access to the deep stuff right away. It could go young into heady company. Yeah, so, see, this is kind of why I was just trying to make an excuse for why I took a liking to the Golden Dawn, because they allowed, I met so many couples in there, you know, and like women, and I was like, well, this this seems more balanced. It was one of the bigger reasons to me. Um, I think that's it's wise we need to open up to the feminine side everywhere, and especially inside of ourselves, because our culture is so over-masculine that we get cut out of right. our you know, Sophianic and intuitive side. But this is one of those tools where you can be completely intuitive. And like I said, when you're just playing with the images, you don't have to bother yourself with the logos, the science, the math, the astronomy, the geometry, you know, all the stuff that involves calculation. You can just go right into what the pictures do to you and what, what your psyche answers. And uh, that's where Michael was such a genius. That's what he really brought. I had already written the book on what the cards had to be because I, that had been commissioned by folks in Great Britain who then unfortunately couldn't make it. So that text was already written. I could give it to Michael, and then he just went crazy with huh. it. And it was fabulous. You know, I'm so thrilled. Mm -hmm. Because look at, you know, how well it works for you. Yeah, right. And look, well... And see, and this is where I'm, I'm, I'm having a big struggle. And I guess this is my last question because I'm a, I'm a more of a ritual ceremonial magician, more of a traditional magician, I guess, in a sense. And so after learning all these correspondences and then learning the history and then really learning what you have to offer here, I have, I've got to rework some things, I, I think, but, um, I would, I can figure that out on my own, but I want to ask more for the audience that's thinking, okay. I get what you're saying. There's a real history behind this, specifically a European and a French one that we need to really look into, and more than that, get the books, go read it, find out. But if they're going to use uh, tarot for divination, I heard you say earlier, pick the one that speaks the best to you with your subconscious, the one that makes you feel the most consistent, right? Something like that? Well, that's for in terms of pictures. Have one deck that totally speaks to you in pictures and you don't have to do that. And then have my deck, if it, if it happens to be a different one, uh, have something like my deck that will carry you into the correspondences so that you can bring in your chart, you can, um, you know, look at the, you know, the numbers, the body of ideas, the signs and planets, and especially because really the ritualist uses the circle, the same circle that they draw on the floor, um, as a compass to point them in the four directions of time. And so at different times of the year, you're creating rituals to face into the energies of the sun and the moon as they go through the yearly cycle. And you're harvesting certain times, which will then, you know, force you to do your speechifying in certain directions Right, because those directions represent the times that right. you've chosen. So there's this, uh, in the end, you bring it back to your chart, and then you look at the times in the year that are loaded according to your own chart, and then you correlate your rituals to meet those energies. Not always in the spots where your chart is charged, but where those things are 
coming around now and maybe compensating for your chart or maybe, you know, boosting your chart or sometimes they're opposing your chart and you're doing a ritual to try and ground the energy so it doesn't blow up in your face and become, you know, a bunch of attacking demons. I mean, the, the only thing you can do is work with it in your own universe. So that circle on the floor is the circle of your chart, and the north, south, east, west is your own four directions as well, and you're learning how to be in the cosmos, a good citizen in the cosmos, while you're trying to dog paddle in the middle of your own life. So you're bringing the down, and you're also lifting yourself up to meet them. But the only tool that you have for that is your body, and it is not, you know, perfectly circular it has bumps and hollows just like right. your chart does so you have uh, to learn those right so we you get, don't we got to wrap yeah. this up i hate that i hate that we got to go but just like we got 60 seconds left here but if you can can you tell everybody like how can they find your work not just the books can they follow you can they learn from you uh real quick here christine well i'm over at facebook you can find me under my name at facebook and you can always reach me there just by uh, writing me a message, or my email is christine at tarotuniversity.com, T-A-R-O-T-U-N-I-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y.com. I now take private students so that we can just totally cultivate their own personal universe. And I, I have writings, I'm building a website, but I'm extremely slow because my mind is working in alternate channels. So just stay in touch with me by email or at watch me at Facebook and anything interesting I'm doing, I'll let, let it be known there. Fantastic. And thank you again for coming on the broadcast. It was a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joe. It's great to spend time with you. Guys, we'll leave all the links there, too, in the archives. Please don't copy the show without written permission, especially you cats over on BitChute copying these shows making money off of it well i'll talk about that later tomorrow night we'll have friday night live with open lines with ryan gable and uh yeah stay tuned for the secret teaching with ryan gable thank you all good night